This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Garden Within, where the war with your emotions ends and your most powerful life begins. Written and narrated by New York Times best-selling author Dr. Anita Phillips. Available now everywhere. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, hang up your writing spurs and unroll your extremely small type newsprint because we are taking a trip to the Wild West with Tom Hanks on this week's episode. You know, Kevin, I, I've been saddling up my horses because I've got a trail to blaze. Listeners, we're going to be revealing the new film from Paul Greengrass, News of the World. We're also going to be taking a deeper look at a film that we felt deserved the full seeing and believing treatment. Lee Isaac Chung's Minari got some pretty high praise from both of us, Wade, on last week's top 10 episode, and we wanted to take a deeper dive into it to explore just what makes it so great. That'll be coming up here in the second half of the episode. It's Tom Hanks and... Michael W. Smith, question mark, on this episode, episode 277 of Seeing and Believing. I'm here to tell you about the 11 men who live, who survived that fire. The 11 men who fought back against their deadly fate. God, I told you to read from the Iraq, eh? Well, see, Mr. Farley, I was wondering if folks might prefer some storytelling from places outside of Iraq. Just for tonight, Mr. Farley. I think you ought to read from the Iraq all the same, Captain. Sort of thing these people expect to hear. How about we vote on it? How about we go? Mr. Farley's E-Rat Journal. Yeah. I can keep on with the story of the men of Kilrat. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 277 of Seeing and Believing. You know, I mentioned Michael W. Smith, and I I should probably give more context, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Michael W. Smith song in Minari during a church potluck scene. It really encapsulates a lot of my childhood in that scene. And I figured it would be, I don't know, I figured it'd be a nice little way to talk about Minari in the introduction. I also, I just remember this too. I said, saddle up your horses. I was quoting Stephen Curtis Chapman. So there's just a lot kind of happening in that introduction. The 90s era CCM is strong in this week's episode, Wade, I, I have to say. I did. I was going to call you out on the Michael W. Smith thing just because, you know, if nobody had listened to our previous week's episode where he actually brought up that scene yeah. uh, there as well, I was like, are people really going to know why Michael W. Smith is coming up in the introduction to a Tom Hanks slash Minari episode? Mm. But I'm glad that you uh, made sure to <laughs> clarify that here right at the top. I mean, I got to say, though, I thought it was pretty clever of a lead because if someone hears that, they're like, I got to listen. I got to listen to more. <laughs> and it just slowly draws them in into the show. So last week, we talked about our favorite films from 2020, Kevin. 
And I guess just to get us started, were there any choices that you made on your list from last week that you're like, oh, I, I wish I could change those now? Or are you still pretty set on that top 10? I think that my top 10 is pretty solid so far. That said, there are some movies that I just didn't have time to get to before uh, putting together my list. I didn't get to see the uh, the indie romance uh, Baby Teeth, or the, I, I guess I don't know if it's a romance. I've more of a coming-of-age story, I guess, but I didn't see Baby Teeth. I heard a lot of good things about that. The new Miranda July film, Kajillionaire, I just didn't have time to catch up with. So there are, you know, as always... Yeah. There are gaps in in my uh, in my watch list that I just didn't quite get to, and one of them will inevitably make it onto the list at some point when I do <laughs> manage to catch up with it. But that said, everything that is currently on the top ten list is solidly on there. Yeah. No regrets. I feel pretty good about it. How about yours? Well, it you know I haven't seen. I actually haven't seen any movies since last week. Uh, I haven't ses- second guessed myself, so uh, that you know, hopefully, hopefully that works. But it's always funny when you watch a good movie after your top ten is set. There's always this temptation, right? You're either like, I got to change my list, or I've got to convince myself that it wasn't good enough. It's there. It's a temptation, and it's real. We'll see what happens. Our one of our listeners, Eric Johnson. He texted me this last week and said he liked the show, liked the top 10s. He sent me his current top 10, and there were a couple on his top 10 that I have not had a chance to see. So I'm like, okay, still need to check out some more, but I'm feeling really good a week out from our top 10. One of of my favorite episodes of the year to record, but... Today, we're actually going to move forward with a film we did not mention last week, and that was Paul Greengrass's News of the World. Here's the movie's official synopsis. Five years after the end of the Civil War, Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, played by Tom Hanks, a veteran of three wars, now moves from town to town as a nonfiction storyteller, sharing the news of presidents and queens, glorious feuds, devastating catastrophes, and gripping adventures from the far reaches of the globe. In the plains of Texas, he crosses paths with Johanna, played by Helena Zingel, a 10-year-old girl taken by the Kiowa people six years earlier and raised as one of their own. Johanna, hostile to a world she's never experienced, is being returned to her biological aunt and uncle against her will. Kid agrees to deliver the child where the law says... She belongs, but as they travel hundreds of miles into the unforgiving wilderness, the two will face tremendous challenges of both human and natural forces as they search for a place that either can call home. Kevin, it's been a little while since we reviewed a Paul Greengrass film. Tom Hanks, however, got the seeing and believing treatment earlier this year when we discussed his World War II drama Greyhound. With the pair uniting for the first time since Captain Phillips, you could say I was a little bit eager to see this movie. So to get us started, my question to you, pretty basic, is this. What did you think about this post-Civil War Western? Another Hank's Greengrass success? Or something landing below your previewing expectations? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I did have actually have the chance to watch a screener of this before putting together my top 10 list. Uh, I 
it was one of those ones that I just didn't have time to to get to. So I actually watched it uh, a couple of days ago before jumping on the recording with you. And you'll notice that News of the World isn't what I, I did not uh, mention it in your in my answer to your earlier question about whether I had any regrets about my top 10 list, because uh, this, you know, I caught up with it. I filled in that gap and this is, you know, this is a very, this is an adequate picture. I, I liked it. I had a good time with it. I don't think it's uh, anything special. I, I think it, it for me is kind of the epitome of what uh, a Tom Hanks film has kind of come to mean for at least for me personally here in kind of the the later years of his career where they're just his the films that he tends to be in are just very comforting I like them uh, uh, a little bit to a lot but there's never really something about them that makes that just really blows me away the way that 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 huge uh, career he had kind of in the the 90s and the and the 2000s just one great movie and performance after another um, that there's I don't really feel that level of of wow factor when I see a, a Hanks film and similar with Greengrass too I, I I like Greengrass as a director again he's not one that I I necessarily am waiting with bated breath for his next project but I do think that he makes very solid movies and I think News of the World is another example of of that phenomenon Hanks is very good this is a great performance for him as uh, Captain Kidd. The performance from his co-star Helena Zengel is uh, also quite good. She's very impressive. And overall, I think this is just a, a very uh, handsomely shot picture. I mean, this is the cinematographer is Darius Wolski, who, among other things, has been the cinematographer for the last two Alien films, Dark City, The Crow. I mean, these these are films that look great. And I think that News of the World also looks very good. There's some really, I, I think, breathtaking images in this film. But after it ended, I kind of, it, it didn't really stick to my ribs, if, if you know what I mean. It just kind of, it was nice, and then it kind of dissipated. And I'm still kind of meditating on, on why that is. So I'm actually curious to discuss this film with you to see what your take was and see if maybe that resonates with you at all. Yeah. So I, I felt the same way about News of the World as I felt about Greyhound when I finished watching that. And I thought that was a, a pretty, you said comforting. I thought it was a pretty comforting film. I wouldn't say that it breaks any rules or does anything unusual. And yet, um, a pretty, a pretty fine, straightforward film and story. That's how I felt about News of the World. I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit, and I did have a chance to see it before I put together my top ten. Didn't make my top ten, but there is something about watching a performer like Tom Hanks, someone we call uh, America's dad, play this fatherly role. And it really just kind of take a take a journey through Texas post Civil War, uh, and hopefully learn a little bit about himself and others along the way. That's really what this movie is. And I thought for what it's trying to do, uh, it's fine. I'm not familiar with the novel that this is based on by Paulette Giles, 
but uh, I, I'd be interested in, in reading it because I think there's some really fascinating ideas here. And yeah, that's about it. I mean, I, I could go into some detail. I, I don't know if there's a, a lot to say about this movie other than, yeah, you know, this was, this was fine. And there were a couple of emotional beats towards the end, but I, I wouldn't say that it was an emotional experience for me. And, and maybe that's what you're getting at as well, Kevin. Yeah, uh, so the screenplay is actually maybe a good place to start. I have read the the source material, the novel that this was based on, and I I think this is one of those cases where I would say that the the book is better than the film adaptation, and a lot of that I think has to do with the way Giles's framing of the story and these characters feels like there's there's more there's more complexity to it i guess and a lot of that is just in things that are difficult to capture cinematically a lot of it has to do with giles's prose the the voice the the way that she describes this world through the eyes of uh of kid those all kind of contribute to paint a very vivid picture of post civil war america and how it's simultaneously uh, an exhilarating place to to live, at least if you are a you know a white settler. Uh, just the the promise, I guess, of the American West that uh, that the American West holds for uh, the the American settlers versus the uncertainty and the tensions that still linger after the traumatic event of the the american civil war and i think that's kind of missing here from the the screenplay which was written by greengrass along with uh luke davies it's just it doesn't really feel like it captures that same complexity and a lot of the resonances that are very intentionally put in there uh to kind of trigger the audience's recognition of uh similar uh, themes and situations in our modern day, they, they feel a little bit too pat. You know, there's there's literally a scene where uh, this kind of overlord of this small village, Erath County, uh, basically t- stands Captain Kidd up in front of a crowd and, and hands him some fake news to read. Like it's it's literally that on the nose, and it's not so much that it's it's a bad sequence or that. Uh, it the the satire is is off somehow. It 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 works for what it is. It just feels a little bit, it feels a little bit obvious, and it feels a little bit like, a little bit like uh, screenwriting by numbers, right? It just doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of complexity there, and it doesn't seem like a lot of thought was given to how to make that point, but in a way that wasn't just sort of kind of almost allegorical, if that makes sense. And I think. That is in this movie's weaker moments tends to be the case where it just it feels very obvious. And I was kind of hoping for something that was a little bit more complex and um, and subtle in in moments like those. (laughs) You're going to laugh at this, Kevin. But when you talked about that scene uh, in in I guess it's towards the, the latter part, the middle the middle of the movie where a character is reading this sort of fake news newspaper. I, 
I did not think of any sort of modern day connections at all. And maybe that was just because I was into this story or what, but I just, I didn't feel like it was on the nose. Now, it's kind of cliche, and at times that scene is even lazy screenwriting because of the way that it plays out, but I didn't I didn't walk away from this movie saying, oh yeah, they're connecting it to this happening here. And so maybe that was just me, I don't know, not paying enough attention to it. I, I do totally understand what you're saying because there isn't a ton of complexity, though I, I think there is a point that's made. And essentially, I was writing down some notes, and it felt like the film was saying, hey, if if you're African-American, if you're a woman, if you're a Native American, you have a target on your back in the American West. This is a place that does not want you or wants you so that it can use you. And so I felt like those those themes and those ideas were there and they were present. But like you said, not a ton of complexity, but I totally kind of missed some of the modern connections. And I don't know, maybe I just wasn't paying attention. And maybe I was just kind of engrossed in the storytelling that it just passed me by. And so that's why it wasn't as as irritating to me or as weak to me as maybe it, it was to you. Yeah, I, I guess mileage may vary. And to the film's credit, the performances really do go a long way. The performances in the production design. I think the the way that uh, Greengrass and uh, his production designer David Crank set the scene in in these these towns, kind of on the edge of the wilderness. How Greengrass shoots Wichita Falls, which you know I've actually been to. My sister used to live there. Um, you know, the way Greengrass shoots it from a, from a distance and you see just how small and isolated it is in the Texas wilderness. Um, the way that, uh, Captain Kidd has to like hold a magnifying glass up and bend so that his nose is almost touching the, the newspaper in order to read by candlelight at, you know, in these nighttime scenes. I think that does a whole lot to make this movie feel very grounded, and the performances also go a long way towards making those feel really, um, they, they feel, even if maybe the themes feel a little bit pat, the movie itself has a very uh, lived-in quality to it that I appreciated. And depending on how willing you are to uh, kind of let yourself be swept up by that authenticity, you know, it, it's it's easy to let some of that other stuff slide, even though for me personally, I kind of, it, it, it clanged for me more than it slid by, I guess. Well, I do appreciate what you're saying too about this sort of muddy, dusty aesthetic. And <laughs> watching the movie, I'm just like, man, these people, all, they all need a shower, right? You you get the sense of the way that these individuals lived in this time period. And like you mentioned, those, those cities that just kind of come out of nowhere, Wichita Falls and Dallas, just they're just there in the middle of, of nothing. And I think that's a great way to highlight this story and to highlight the American West. I, I will say I will say this. There are a number of times, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, the characters, they they flee Dallas and they're going south. And 
we see all of these mountains around there. And I'm like, hey, I used to live South Dallas and <laughs> those mountains were not there. So it's kind of funny to see a space like this and how it's used and how it's given to the stereotypes of of the American West. Another point that I appreciated about the movie is that there's no main quote-unquote villain. There are a number of different villains, and this really is kind of the journey film, but instead of characters being chased by one group of people for an extended period of time, they encounter multiple obstacles along the way. And I found that to be kind of unique. Uh, Some of the villains, because they weren't given very much screen time, were not as fleshed out as probably they could be. They were caricatures of the Old West villain. Um, But it was kind of fascinating to see these villains come up and go away, and then another one uh, arises. And it it lends itself to some of those ideas within the movie of, okay, this is a hostile place and pitfalls are really everywhere. Like they could happen at any time, especially for those groups of people um, that are used and abused in our country and specifically in the American West during this time period. So some of those little flourishes, I think, work pretty well across the film. Yeah, and perhaps to nobody's surprise, Greengrass, the action sequences that are in this film, Greengrass acquits himself really well. There's uh, a scene where uh, the wagon that Kid and Johanna are are taking along this this treacherous road. The, 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 the wagon careens out of control, and that's kind of an edge-of-your-seat sequence with the way that Greengrass kind of shoots with the camera point straight down at the wheels of the wagon, you know, kind of jiggling and coming apart as the ground beneath them rushes by. It's all just, it's very well done. One thing I maybe didn't expect quite as much was some more... Uh, I don't know, painterly seems like a little bit of a highfalutin term to use for it. But there are a couple of scenes where Greengrass lets a different side of of his directorial uh, range show through. I'm thinking of a scene during a rainstorm where Johanna runs off uh, and she's standing at this precipice looking across this raging flooded river at a group of Native Americans who are on the move. They're get, being pushed off their land by the white settlers, and they're, they're moving on, and they're members of her tribe, and she wants them to take her back. That, for her, is, is home. And she, she cries out for them to, to stop and to come get her. And... Greengrass shoots them from a distance. He doesn't really place us on that side of the river. And the way that they're shot through the the misting rain and with the flashes of lightning kind of backlighting them gives it kind of this ghostly quality that makes it pretty clear that this is, you know, these are people who are being pushed away and to uh, the great tragedy of the, of this, of this nation, they're, they're, they're fading away. They're almost ghostly. And I think that that coupled with a later scene of a, of a dust storm where again, uh, kid and Johanna encounter some native Americans who show them the pity that 
they never received in return uh, is very powerful and I think is very much needed in a film like this that is so concerned with the the frontier. Yeah, no, and it's fascinating because I associate the photography of Greengrass with, with something being kinetic. And here uh, we see flashes of the abstract or the poetic. And you mentioned that his cinematographer here is is Volsky and he collaborates often with Ridley Scott and also did uh, the Pirates movies. Uh, I, I know he did at least the first three, maybe four. And so I think he's the perfect person to collaborate with Greengrass to give us some of these shots. Particularly, there are two different scenes involving a group of Native Americans. And I think some of those shots say a good deal about Native Americans within this film. It's not saying anything too complicated, but it's also not going to that sort of trite cliche of, oh, they're just savages, you know, who killed for no reason. Uh, The film, I think, goes deeper than that and points the finger at the settlers who have come and the soldiers who have come. And a lot of that is communicated with the photography here and these compositions and some of the movements within the film of the camera. And so, yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I, I've got a lot of good things to say about this. Um, even if I don't feel like it's, it's something that, uh, is, is going to change anybody's perspective. I think it's, I think it's a pretty good time at the movies. I think it's, it's, it's fine for what it is, I guess. I, I obviously, as we said earlier, I probably don't like it quite as much as you. And I think that it probably has to do a little bit with the, the civil war shaped elephant in the room, I guess they, I, I, as much as I liked the scenes, uh, involving the native Americans, uh, and, and that part of the American West dynamic, I felt like the depiction of post-civil war tensions was correspondingly shallow. It felt to me the there's, Really only one scene where Greengrass really lets us see it fully in action, and that's where Kid is, you know, reading aloud some some news from a newspaper, and he mentions uh President Ulysses Grant. And of course he's in Texas. Many of the people he's speaking to were Confederate soldiers who fought against Grant when he was a, a Union general. And so there are all these tensions boiling over. And it kind of ends with a, a speech from Kid where he says, you know, we're all suffering. It, it's really bad for us, you know, ex-Confederates and the Union people aren't helping us as much as we should, as much as they should. But we Confederates have also done some bad things. So let's just kind of, you know, let bygones be bygones is the upshot of the scene. And it feels like, frankly, pretty weak tea, especially give. I mean, all concerns about politics aside, it just feels like there's so much more complexity to the post-Civil War dynamics and Reconstructionism that could have been explored that Greengrass kind of just leaves on the table. It's hard not to wish that there was a little bit more. Well, and and I felt like that scene was him addressing the frustrations of those individuals and getting them to calm down. And yet everything he sees paints a bigger picture that it's not just the the fault of the soldiers. 
the, the people who are the main villains throughout the movie that crop up as the villains are not, you know, are not soldiers. In fact, they are probably, I, I think they actually say some of them are ex-Confederate soldiers. And then Hanks gives this sort of monologue at the end where he talks about things that he did during war. And at the beginning of the movie, he buries uh, an African-American that he comes across on the road when the soldiers just kind of pass the individual by. So I don't think there's the type of complexity there that maybe we we need, but I don't know. I wouldn't say that it's shallow, I, maybe just incomplete if, if there's a distinction between the two, and, and maybe there's not, but that's how it feels uh, to me. Yeah, well, definitely lots to talk about there. Listeners, if you've seen News of the World, we're definitely interested in your take on uh, these and other issues. So you can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter to let us know your thoughts. If you haven't seen News of the World, it is currently playing on demand pretty much across digital platforms. So it should be easy for you to find. Don't go anywhere. In the second segment, we're going to be revisiting Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. song is together by onyx listeners we want to take an opportunity and thank all of you who have supported us over the last couple of years on our patreon page we have a number of different donation levels and with each level you get some perks one of our favorites is the what can you buy for five dollar level and kevin it's been about two months so i've been i've been thinking about this a lot what can someone buy <laughs> what can someone buy for five bucks $5 would buy you a uh, a capsule that you can climb into and have buried in the ground. Hmm. Uh, and then hopefully somebody will, will discover you and, you know, maybe 20 years and kind of unearth you. It'll be sort of a Rip Van Winkle situation. Frankly, it seems like a steal for five bucks. I'm kind of amazed that hmm. uh, it's that cheap, but... I guess you are giving up a lot when you, you know, go to sleep for 20 years and wake up in whatever horrible future awaits us wow yeah that's funny it it kind of feels like they just took the coffin and renamed it the capsule if i'm being honest i mean you're not wrong uh you aren't like you aren't getting buried alive though it's more like a like a cryo sleep thing think like the alien movies you know like you're you're like ripley waking up and and discovering that you're, you know, about to become lunch for some horrible xenomorph. So, you know, there's there's that, except it's on Earth, and uh, you don't have a cute cat. Or maybe you have. <laughs> I don't know. The possibilities are endless for $5 there, is what I'm trying to say. There <laughs> are a lot of possibilities for that. You can also, listeners, take that 5 bucks and support us on Patreon. Just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. 
you know, listeners, if if I sounded a little bit doomy right there, talking about you know time capsules and being <laughs> buried alive and all of that, I mean, that it might. I, I have to apologize. It, it might be the times in which we live. There are it's some pretty crazy times that are going on as we're recording this right now with the end of one presidency and the beginning of another. Fortunately, on the website, christandpopculture.com, we've got you covered if you're interested in reading some really great thoughts about that. Our own KB Hoyle, in her storied column, chose to take a look at uh, last year's film, A Hidden Life, uh, and relate that to our present political situation. The article is titled, A Hidden Life, Patriotism, and a Rightly Ordered Love for America. And she uses that great film uh, from Terrence Malick as a jumping off point to explore what is a rightly ordered love for one's country and what is the Christian's place in a civic civic order like ours uh it's good stuff you should definitely check it out yeah i i like that movie a lot made my my top 10 last year and uh, always excited to read more about it there's also another article on christandpopculture.com that i want to point our listeners to it's written by timothy thomas and it's titled disney soul is so good because it's so black I like Disney Soul a lot. It made my top 10 this year, and it's always great to read uh, Timothy's work. And there's this great line in the article. He says, we learn from Des that we are not failures because we don't reach our goals. We are failures when we stop living in light of our unrealized dreams. And he goes on to talk about the power of, of soul. So I would direct our listeners over to that article if you want to dig into the movie a little bit more. As always, you can find those on ChristandPopCulture.com. And if you'd like to support the site, on the right-hand corner, there is a subscribe now button. Go ahead and do that. It too is $5 a month. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. 애들은 할머니랑 같이 방 쓰는 거 싫어한다던데. I don't like grandma. 걔는 안 그래요. 한국애니까. Grandma smells like Korea. 야. 뭐라고? Grandma smell? Well, we're back with the second half of our show and you know, Wade, I I feel like I often use the first line of the second segment as a way to sort of tease what's coming up, maybe <laughs> sow a few seeds to wet listeners' appetite for what are we going to say about the movie that's coming up next. But we kind of let the cat out of the bag with last week's episode. It's no secret that you and I both like Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. Let's just get that out there right off the bat. (laughs) Yeah, usually there's this mystery and we kind of keep this allure up until we reveal our hand, but we can't do it this week. There's, There's no point in pretending this is a very good film, but we did want to... 
don't know, when, when we were talking about it during the top 10 episode, I just felt like there was so much more I could have said that I restrained myself from saying because the episode was already so long and you and I both had to sleep sometime. <laughs> so I held off, but I'm glad that we're getting a chance to dig into it deeper in this week's episode because it is a very strong film and there's a lot to it. A story about what roots us, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari follows a Korean-American family that moves to a tiny Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. The family home changes completely with the arrival of their sly, foul-mouthed, but incredibly loving grandmother, and together they have to figure out how to navigate the tensions of their new life, whether they stick together or see their family bonds slowly crack and fracture. Chung drew in part on his personal memories of growing up, so there's an interesting thread of autobiography to follow as you make your way through Minari, but there's no need to be have any familiarity with Chung's biography to appreciate the warm, delicate family drama that he provides for us in this film. Wade, this was a, a film, like I said, it was on both of our top 10 lists. You had it at number seven, I believe. I had it at number five. So we'll just jump right in. Uh, obviously, we'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to our top 10 episode to you know, hear some of the thoughts that we offered on this film there. But to get us started here and now, I'm curious to know, what do you like about Minari? What was it that made this a lock for the number seven spot on your list and why do you think it's important that other people see it yeah so this is this was one of the last few films i watched before putting my top 10 together and i had a chance to think about it over the last week and it really just i think deepened my appreciation of the movie this is a this is a simple premise if you were to write this down on a piece of paper and give it to somebody else, I, I don't think it would turn a lot of heads. But it's put together in a way that's tender and important and universal. This premise is deepened as we get deeper into the film. And there's so much to take away from the plight of this family, their their search for the American dream, their risk-taking, the relationships that they have with one another, how those deepen and how those change under stress. There's, there's so much involved in this story. And after thinking about it, I just, I've grown to like it. I've grown to love it a whole lot more. So I'll probably say some of the same things that I did last week, but hopefully I can go into a little more depth and really let this review breathe a bit more and hopefully express my my appreciation better. Uh, I can co-sign everything you said there. I think for me, what makes the what takes this beyond just kind of a, a very, very good, very touching family drama into something uh, that is that, but also more than that, uh, is is interesting to plumb. I mean, there there were definitely a wealth of family dramas. You had, I think, Driveways was on uh, your top ten as well at some point, and that's that's an example of a of a drama of another indie drama that deals with you know relationships, particularly 
family relationships and does so in a you know, very understated, very grounded way. And it's a good film, but it's not one that I really considered for my top 10 list. With Minari, I think what, and I'll, I'll pause here and just say that I'm going to apologize in advance for any uh, mispronunciations of Korean that I engage in over the course of this segment. I know that the proper pronunciation of Minari is, I think, Minadi, I think is closer to the way that you would pronounce it, but uh, my my American tongue is just not going to uh, make, make that work, so I, I'm just going to make my peace with it here now and, and just kind of lampshade it. Uh, but uh, moving on, I think what Minari set, what sets it apart for me, I guess, is that it does have that, you know, very well-observed uh, relationship drama as part of it. But Chung also finds ways to sneak in little flourishes that really make you think about more than just what are these individuals, like what's going to happen with these individuals and more about the broader social fabric into which they fit. I think of obviously the the theme of the attainability of the American dream and how Stephen Yun's father character in this in this film is just he he dreams so much of not working uh just kind of a a a job as a as a chicken sexer where he just sort of like looks at chicks to see whether they're male or female and just does that for eight hours a day and goes home. He wants more out of life. That's kind of the the quintessence of the American dream. Uh, Chung really explores just how alluring that dream is and also the pitfalls that are inherent in having that be your focus above and beyond all else to the exclusion of other things. Um, I think it's interesting that Chung chooses to have Stephen Yun's father character uh, wear a red baseball cap through through most of, much of the picture, partly because watching this in 2020, it's hard to avoid thinking of the Make America Great Again caps that uh, Trump supporters often wear. And having that echoed in uh, Yun's character's uh, clothing isn't, you know, he's not... Chung isn't making a political statement per se, but he is kind of suggesting maybe the how America does hold this promise and and this almost mythical power to compel uh, for all sorts of people, and how that that is something that both uh, gives uh, a sense of purpose, but can also act as kind of an, an entrapment of sorts, and we see that kind of work out over the course of this film, and. That's just one example of the thoughtfulness that Chung brings to all sorts of choices. And I think that is maybe what elevates this from a very good indie drama to one of the best films of 2020. It's fascinating that you would you would point out the hat. And I and I think you make a make a good point. And it's it it's just I don't know, it's kind of strange. Um but that is what the red hat has become in a sense. I have this University of Georgia hat and it's red and I, I love the hat. And somebody was joking me, a friend was joking with me the other day and they're like, oh, it's your MAGA hat. And I was like, no, you can't take this hat from me. It's my, it's my hat. But it's funny the type of uh, sensors that a hat like that or an image like that will will set off. And it's just they're on the surface to where you, you think about those things. And like you mentioned, and you said very delicately that it's not 
it's not that Chung is is trying to say that he is this individual or believes this, but there are these ideas kind of floating around, even even back then in the eighties. And here's what I here's what I actually found fascinating about this movie and my reaction to the movie is that I actually very much respect the father Jacob's decision to take these big risks. So when he's doing it and he's asking his his family to sacrifice for a certain period of time, I I can kind of resonate with that. And I think that that, I don't know, I think there's something commendable there that he says, I'm going to work as hard as as possible. But then we do see him becoming obsessed. We do see that stress, not not always bringing the family together, but really kind of pulling them apart. And so you can see these good seeds are slowly are slowly going bad. And I think that goes back to that word you use, the delicacy of of really this of this movie and what it's trying to say. And I, I did mention this last week. I love the change in perspectives. We'll kind of carry uh, we'll kind of carry around with the parents and we'll hear their conversations. And then during these other moments, uh, particularly a hospitalization, we just stay, we hang out with the kids the whole time. And I think that's great because it shows that the parents, they are, they're stressed to the max about providing for their family. And the kids are stressed to the max that their parents will break up. And alongside of that is this kind of boredom with the children. And it's set in the 1980s. I found this to be just a film that does a good job of capturing what it was like to grow up without screens and to just be bored. And so we get the stress of parenthood. We also get that sort of unique stress of being a child, and it's all mixed together to to really show how these two groups of people interact with one another and live uh, live with one another. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought up the the ensemble of this of this film because I don't know I especially considering that Chung is drawing on his own personal experiences growing up, it would have been very easy for him to kind of present us a primarily a child's eye view of what this uh, what this time was was like for the family. But I think one of the small miracles of this of Minari is that Chung is able to really let us see the family's situation or maybe their predicaments, depending on which character's eyes you're seeing it through. Uh, he lets us spend time through each character's perspective. I think for me, maybe the the best performance, I, I think Stephen Yun got maybe the lion's share of the, the recognition. Yao Yo Jung as uh, the grandmother got a lot of attention. I really like Yeri Han as uh as Monica, the uh the the wife and mother of in this family. There's a scene late in the film where she kind of confronts Jacob about the choices that he's made, the the way that his priorities have have shifted. He's the way he's 
turned off water to their to their home so they could use that water to to for the crops instead and the confrontation between them you you see in her face something this heartbreak over the realization that maybe this this man that she married isn't somebody she recognizes anymore or maybe that she does recognize him and and that's always kind of been there and now they're kind of butting up against the hard place where something has to give. And that moment of, of realization that you see on her face, Chung leaves his camera on her for a long time. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And it's an example of something that a lesser film might not have had. The the uh, young boy character who is maybe, you know, if Chung had a stand in, in this film, that would be him. The, the little boy isn't present for this conversation. Uh, it's not seen from, you know, from the car where the boy is waiting. It's focused on these two adults and kind of this impasse that they're find, they find themselves in. And moments like that are, are included for every single one of the members of this family. And I just think that's what takes it above and beyond. Well, and you mentioned a character last week, uh, Will Patton's character, someone who is a very religious uh, individual. He says he's a Christian. He does and says a number of strange things. And yet he's one of the most helpful people out of everyone in that town. And in, in one sense, it goes to show you that sometimes we find help from unexpected places. Uh, it also goes to show you that that sometimes, sometimes the people who are the most different from us are maybe the people who are closer to the kingdom of God, if that makes sense. This character is definitely outside the norm, and even people in the church are like, that guy's weird. And yet he's living out, in some ways, uh, the gospel, the gospel of, of, of servitude and of love. And he very much cares for this family when there's almost no reason for him to care for this family. And it's a nice juxtaposition to the church. And it's it's really, these church scenes are fascinating for a number of different reasons because the people there have seem to have good intentions. They, they do treat the family, um, they... They, they unintentionally offend or put them down at times, and yet we, we can almost forgive them or there's this delicate nature to it because, okay, they live in Arkansas and a family from Korea is visiting their church, and this is something just new and different to them. But it's fascinating how we look at the church, we look at Christians inside the church, we look at a Christian outside the church, and how they interact with this with this family and how it affects their future and i would almost love to see a sequel uh, of this film and perhaps not a direct sequel maybe a spiritual sequel that talks about someone who has grown up in this environment and where they went and maybe that's where you know chung is now um, but it leads to some interesting stories and some interesting ideas yeah, the the encounter at that at that church, I think, is uh, again a great example of how Chung is able to synthesize th- this experience into into a piece of art that is is fully understanding. Because you're right that the the 
racist, the oblivious racism of of these churchgoers is is offensive and like almost outrageously. So I think there's uh, some of the things that uh, are are said to the children are just. They almost make you gasp, uh, you know, here yeah. in 2020. Yeah. But uh, the way that they're portrayed, Chung doesn't shy away from or make excuses for those perspectives. But he also doesn't he doesn't caricature them. He doesn't make them more outrageous or offensive than they than they need to be or that they are. the The way that the way that it really reflects the period of time, you know, the eighties, the region, you know, rural Arkansas, uh, is, is very well observed. And he also makes, it's, it's an observational quality to the, to those scenes that really makes it work where it's not, uh, stylized in a way to make these people out to be just, two-dimensional cutouts of racists. They're, they're, they're fully-fledged people, and they're fully-fledged people in whom racism resides, almost as a matter of course. And Chung doesn't really editorialize on it beyond that, and I think that that's what gives it some of its powers. You realize, well, that's kind of what these... This family is going to have to deal with this every day of their life in probably in their, in their new home in Arkansas, and yet they keep going anyway, and they still befriend some of these people. And that's that's an interesting way to portray kind of the, uh, again, watching this in, in 2020, the, the challenges of uh, a multicultural society where you acknowledge that not everybody's at the same place in realizing their, their cultural blinders, but there's still possibly grace for those people as well it's it's a borderline uh confrontational controversial way to portray it and i just think that i don't know i think it's again it's just emblematic of how chung's approach really takes minari into a, a, a different class by itself yeah no that's a, that's a great way to put it and then too just the larger questions of of calamity and hardship and stress that this family experiences and i mentioned will that stress bring them together or tear them apart and we see it happen kind of in both ways but it's possible that a film like this almost made in in high with hindsight uh would say hey it maybe maybe hardship actually kept the family together um could that be possible is that something that occurred and i appreciate just just this very human story. And like I mentioned, and I'll say it again as as we close out this review, it's a simple premise that just deepens across the film. And uh, yeah, that's why it's one of the year's best. Minari is opening soon. And I know the details are kind of out there right now. They're subject to change. It's scheduled to get a theatrical release in February. Who knows what's going to happen but, listeners, if you have a chance to check out this movie, definitely do so. And also, let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We have reached the part of the show where we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Well, Wade, uh, on last week's episode, you did kind of ask me what were some films that just barely missed the cut, what were some some honorable mentions that 
I, I liked, but just weren't quite in the top 10. And, uh, yeah, I mentioned a few on, on that episode, but I didn't mention the one that I'm going to talk about now. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of regret that. I wish I had, because I do like it, uh, quite a bit. It's, uh, Thomas Vinterberg's film, Another Round. This is, uh, kind of a comedy slash, it's a dramedy, I guess, about a group of, of middle-aged, uh, men. They're all friends. They're, they're teachers, uh, at the, at the same school. And as they kind of gather for a birthday party and realize that uh, one of their number, the the one played by Mads Mikkelsen, is kind of really struggling with feeling like he's he's losing himself, like he's facing some sort of midlife crisis, and he feels like he isn't in touch with himself. He feels kind of closed off from connection and emotion. And so they kind of hatch this scheme based on the writings of a philosopher to always be a little bit buzzed constantly, all day, at work, at home, whatever, just kind of have just enough alcohol to drink to keep themselves at a at a buzz throughout the day and see how that kind of unlocks their potential. Maybe it's sort of the the Danish art house version of Limitless, that Bradley Cooper movie about like the <laughs> yeah, brain yeah. unlocking drugs. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of like that. It, it's it's it is amusing to watch these these guys kind of move deeper into their experimentation with alcohol and it kind of gets away from them after a little while. And then it it shifts from being amusing to uh, disturbing and then kind of moves on into something else that's difficult to define. And I don't really want to spoil where it goes exactly, but the, the character study that Vinterberg does of, of each of these men is really compelling and it ends with a finale that is joyous but also i don't know it's got an interesting quality to it it's 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 that ending i keep going back and forth in my mind about whether it's supposed to be a happy ending or a very ambivalent ending and i think that's the mark of a good work of art that makes you think about it days and days after you first encountered it. So yeah, definitely check out another round. I think it should be available to, you know, get on demand, but uh, definitely track it down however you can. Yeah. So that was one of those that I was going to try to fit in and did not have a chance to. It's always like down to the wire getting those films in before the top 10. So definitely want to see it. Uh, So my recommendation you know, with everything going on, don't we just long for the days of 1990s baseball, steroid scandal <laughs> and all, uh, just guys getting juiced and hitting home runs. If that's you, I want to direct you to a ESPN 30 for 30 film by AJ Schnack. It's called Long Gone Summer. Now, Kevin, I know you're not super into baseball, but it might appeal to you because it involves uh, Sammy Sosa, who played for the Chicago Cubs up there. I don't know if he's still a fan favorite or not. And then also Mark McGuire, who played for the St. Louis Cardinals. And it tracks their home run competition during the 1998 MLB season, they're all trying to beat the single season home run record. And it comes down to Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. We get a great chronology of that season, as well as 
where it fits in baseball history. Baseball is coming off of kind of this scandal in 1994. You got the the player strike. People are falling out of love with baseball. This rejuvenates the sport. It rejuvenates Chicago baseball. And it was an exciting year. I remember being 12 years old and keeping up with this home run competition throughout the season. And I appreciate this documentary, which it doesn't do anything special, but it it does hit that nostalgia factor for me. And then it talks about steroids and how this event between McGuire and Sosa has become almost a poster child for steroid use in baseball, which just really hampered the sport for for many, many years. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun. So if you have... ESPN Plus, uh, you can go to ESPN.com. It might be available some other places, but it's called Long Gone Summer. It's one of their feature film 30 for 30s. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I've, I haven't heard about this documentary specifically, but the 30 for 30 documentaries, I hear from those from time to time. Oh, yeah. And they, they almost make me wish that I were more into sports because it does sound like it would be fun to revisit these uh these periods from sports history kind of like a walk down memory lane and sort of relive that i do remember the you know the the home run contest between mcguire and soza and the the steroid scandals that that followed so uh maybe it would be something that even though i'm not a a baseball buff i could still kind of take that walk down memory lane with you yeah yeah i mean if if you have a chance there are a lot of good 30 for 30s that they go through these um, seasons, whether it's baseball or hockey or football or you know gymnastics, and they take they take a little story or they take a team or they take an athlete, and it, it they just kind of dig in, and it's really fun, especially if you if you are um, a familiar with that that place and time. In ten years, they're probably going to do a thirty for thirty on Houston Astros baseball, and it'll make me cry, but I'll I'll watch it. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's just kind of a, kind of a lot listeners. That is the end of our episode. Uh, Kevin, we talked about Tom Hanks. We didn't really talk about Stephen, not Stephen Chris Chapman, Michael W. Smith all that much, but he is in <laughs> Minari. So we checked a lot of boxes this episode. Yeah. I mean, some of us might, the, the Michael W. Smith cameo, uh, musical cameo, might be a little bit more meaningful for some than than for others, but it is there <laughs> if you want a different kind of stroll down memory lane. It is. Uh, when you're watching your your Oscar your Oscar deserving indie family dramas, <laughs> that is well said, listeners. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by Christandpopculture.com. Our producer, as always, is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, my co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.